0: The protestant reformation is one of the most important periods in church history it's the time when the church began to cast off the idolatrous pagan theology of the catholic church and replace it with the true doctrine of salvation and faith however if this time coincides with the letter to sardis jesus calls these efforts incomplete resulting in dead theology how is this possible We'll talk about it on this week's episode of revelation unveiled on faith by reason welcome to faith by reason the website behind it all is faithbyreason.net there you will find hundreds of hours of study material blogs podcasts and video and this is part two of the study on the letter to sardis in part one we went over the historical point of view from the the actual city of sardis and what their issues were we looked at it from the bible we also looked at how Um, that dead theology can invade our personal lives and our church congregational lives. And now we want to talk about it from the prophetic point of view, which we did not have time to do because of the, the length of it. So since this again will be, you know, fairly long um, episode, maybe a little over 40 minutes, let's just dive right in. All right, let's go to the prophetic level and the prophetic level states, as I've talked about before, These seven churches, in the order in which they were presented, represent a history of the church in advance. Jesus tells the entire church in advance from the apostolic age all the way up to our current age. So Ephesus is the apostolic church of the first couple centuries. Smyrna is the persecuted church of the next two centuries. Pergamum represents the medieval church from about 400 to 800 A.D., um, and then the last church that we talked about, Thyatira, represents the the apex of Roman Catholicism from about 1000 AD to about 1500 AD. So if that's the case, if that's correct, then Sardis would represent the next major church age, which would be the Reformation and for those of you who listened to the message at Sardis and you're Catholic and you were very uncomfortable because I had some pretty harsh things to say about the Catholic Church and deservedly so, well, take comfort in the fact that again, this the next church after Thyatira would have to be Sardis, and Sardis is one of two churches about which Jesus has absolutely nothing positive to say. So, how did the Reformation happen? Well, there, there had been after with Catholicism, you know, uh, taking its it, it, it was at its apex. It's, we were in, a, in the salad days of Catholicism, and it was again the rule of the mystics of these pagans. They had taken over the church, and they had mixed their pagan mysticism with a a facade of Christianity. And again, they they were ruling the church, uh, the so-called church, and then uh, ostensibly in the name of God, but it had nothing to do with God or Jesus. They were they were still pagans. So there have been many attempts to reform the church. Um, people who could read the Bible, because and it was very few, because the Bible was written in Latin. They, the Catholic Church did not allow the Bible to be translated into any other language. They did not want the common people to read the Bible, because if they did, they would see that all the nonsense the Catholics were, the Catholic hierarchy was putting forth, was a completely anti, anti-biblical. But the few who were educated and could read it would say, "Hey, wait a minute! This the Bible has is completely divorced from what the the Catholic hierarchy is saying. It's they're completely contradictory. So they would attempt to reform it." from inside, thinking that, you know, the Rome and the Vatican were actually Christian and they would say, well, let's make it right. But of course, the hierarchy of Catholicism would fight against that because the last thing they wanted to do was lose power. So it was more important to them to maintain their power than to actually reform. So they would end up using their secular power to destroy physically and economically anyone who would come against them. That all changed in the late 1500s with a man named Martin Luther. So, who is Martin Luther? Well, Martin Luther was a devout German Catholic who was studying law at the University of Erfurt when he was caught in a severe lightning storm one day on campus. And fearing for his life, he hid away from from that unnaturally severe thunderstorm, and he called upon St. Anna, who was his patron saint. She was actually the patron saint of coal miners, his family, were families of minors and he was you know again studying law and all these so-called saints they're actually just other pagan deities who the mystic would slap so-called Christian names on just so that people would be worshiping these pagan gods or demigods under the name of so-called saints anyway he called upon Saint Anne he said Saint Anne save me from this storm and he's told her he said you know if you save me from this storm but it's going may kill me I will I, I will devote myself to Catholicism So then after after that, the storm passed by and he was spared and he became, he remained true to his word, which was true to his word. Uh, Luther quit law school and he, he actually became a monk and began living a life of piety. Unfortunately this led him to the predicament faced by most people who embrace religion. And again, religion is the religion. Religion is man's attempt to be like God on his own, through his own power. Not through the power of God, but through his own power. And it always fails because it's full of contradictions. So Luther soon began to realize that his religious works did not alleviate his guilt because our works cannot alleviate our guilt, and we all feel that guilt. In Luther's case, he was plagued by so-called immoral thoughts, specifically thoughts of a sexual nature, which would not go away no matter how many rituals and sacraments he performed under Catholicism. Catholicism teaches you that you have to punish your flesh, that you have to you know, say your rosary, do your things, whatever it is that the Catholics say you have to do in order to be to, to whatever physical works you have to do in order to um, repent of your sins. Luther predictably followed, he followed all the, the path of religious adherence instead of his instead of his failure at self-justification leading to contrasted thinking and true righteousness by admitting that you can't be righteous on your own and you need God to be more righteous. No, he just chose the path of, of brain damage. And as I said before, religion causes brain damage. I have a whole series on how religion, man-made religion, damages your brain. Luther actually chose a different path of doubling down. He became more religious. He physically beat and flailed himself in order to punish his flesh. He obsessively performed every religious ritual he could think of. He went to confession so often, his priests were reported to eventually told him, Hey man, go do something worth confessing or don't bother coming back. Apparently even these mystics get bored with nonsense after a while if you don't have anything interesting to say in confessional. So Luther eventually decided to take a pilgrimage to Rome to try to get holy that way. But what he saw there would change his life and the course of Western history. When he got to Rome, he went there for the first time and he saw the vast wealth the mystics had accumulated by literally charging the poor masses of people for a free ticket to heaven under their so-called indulgences. We talked about this during the, the, the lesson on the church at Thyatira. And I showed you the, the pictures which I'm showing now about all the excesses, the amazing, unbelievable wealth of the Roman church. That if they just sold one tenth of what they owned, kept 90%, just sold one tenth of the treasures of the art, of the gold and jewels that they they could feed every starving person in the world. But instead, they don't. They keep it hoarded up in Rome. I've seen it myself. It's not doing anyone any good. It's just sitting there. It's vanity. It has nothing to do with God. Anyway. So he saw the vast wealth of his mystics had accumulated. He noticed that their opulence was an affront to the mission and message of Jesus. This finally led Luther to begin asking contrastive questions about Catholicism. As he sought answers from God, he was led to the passage that says, the just shall live by faith. You, you see it in Romans, you see it in Hebrews, you see it in the Old Testament. Luther understood that man is not justified by the so-called good works of the Catholic Church, tells people to to commit and those good works usually means giving money to the church or doing things in the name of the Catholic church. So he's not, man is not justified by the so-called good works or the money he feeds to clergy, but by faith in God alone. Luther went back to Germany and in 1517 nailed his famous 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. The 95 theses were, were 95 uh, condemnations of the church based on 95 things that the church was doing wrong, so these the, this thesis condemn the idea that you can be saved by buying these indulgences from the church, which is basically you pay the church a certain the Catholic Church a certain amount of money. Hey, you get into heaven. Great. So you're basically bribing your way into heaven. That's why, as I said in in the podcast and Thyatira, you have these these mobsters that you see in movies and in real life who do you know, prostitution and child trafficking and gambling and all these horrible things but they all consider themselves Catholic because they think hey, you know, we'll, we'll just give some money to the church and some priests will pray our way into heaven as an indulgence. indulgence. Now Luther's position became very popular and was embraced by powerful German royals who also had problems with the Catholic Church and they provided him safe haven from the mystics in Rome and allowed Luther's following to grow so the Catholics couldn't kill him because again the princes in Germany wouldn't allow them to. And so the and it spread, and the Protestant Reformation became began in earnest. Now, the focus of the Reformation was the vital doctrine of salvation, and directly contradicted the doctrines of the of the mystics in Rome on the matters of what they could call the five soles or the five alones. The first one is Scripture alone is God's word, as opposed to the sacred traditions, which the, the Catholic hierarchy says are equal to or superior to the Bible. The second one is justification by faith alone instead of these rituals meant to pay down the guilt we have as opposed to the, the blood of Jesus, which actually pays for our guilt. Then salvation by grace alone, not by the so-called good works or financing the lifestyles of, of, of your local uh, priest and salvation through Christ alone, not through the Virgin Mary. She the Virgin Mary was a sinner who needed to be saved. She Mary called Jesus, her savior. She is not the code redemptrix with Christ. She is not divine, she is not sinless, or all the other things that Mary says. And you don't get salvation through her or through any of these so-called saints. The glory and the glory for it all goes to God alone. That's number five. Not to any man, no matter how many nice robes or uh, pimped out hats and gold chains and golden crosses he wears. God gets the glory alone. Not someone who calls himself a pope or a cardinal or a bishop. Only God is called Father. It says it blatantly in the Bible call no man Father except God. Only God gets that glory. And again, that, that that Reformation changed the world. So here's the question If the Protestant Reformation did so much good, why was the letter to Sardis so negative? And I'm going to be blunt with you the letter to Sardis is one of, it's probably the only place that I cast any doubt in my mind over the, the theory, the idea that the, the the prophetic point of view that these letters lay out the history of the church in advance. When I first was embracing this this idea, I was great with you know with, with Ephesus and Sardis and Pergamum and Thyatira, even Philadelphia and Laodicea. But the one that made me question it was Sardis, because like most non-Catholic Christians I revere the Reformation. I still revere. The Reformation did great work. And I didn't understand if that was the case. If Sardis represented the Reformation, why would Jesus have no good words to say about the Reformation, about these works these great men did in the name of, of God that, that really, that really uh, revolutionized what we thought about salvation and, and, and basically led to the, the, the church as we know it. Here's the thing. The Reformation did great work on salvation doctrine. That was the one thing they, just like Sardis, that was the one thing they did right that they were barely holding on to, but they didn't go far enough to separate themselves from the mystics, from the Catholic Church. In fact, Jesus explicitly said that their works were not complete. Their works were not perfect. They did a good thing by with, with understanding salvation and coming up with the right Definition for salvation, but that was all they did. That's what they were holding on to. That was the one thing that Jesus said to hold on to. That's ready to die. You got everything right, but even your salvation is about to die because you only got that right, but you didn't complete your work. Uh, to this day, you will still find many mystic slash Catholic Catholic trappings in the Protestant churches. The buildings are filled with the same symbols and glyphs as a Catholic church. You will find the same stuff. In Catholicism that you will find, that, that, that you some find the same stuff in Protestant churches you will find in Catholic churches. The stained glass, all the symbology, all the um, glorified you know symbols and, and relics and all that kind of stuff. You'll still see it there. There's still a single quasi-worship, minister. The minister at your church, what does he wear? He wears the same kind of robes as a Catholic priest. With the, all these ordained again symbols and glyphs on it, he stands before the church in robes and collars, and he's the primary or sole source of doctrine for the entire congregation. Many churches do—they don't read the Bible; they take whatever the preacher says as as the Holy Word of God. And you had better not say anything bad about a preacher. And I will tell you, me personally, growing up in in a Protestant church, a non-Catholic church, but but the preacher of our church. You, you were not allowed to say anything bad about him. You could not critique anything he said. I remember I was you know a young kid in, in the church that my grandmother was the matriarch of that church. She's the one who literally helped build that church from the ground up. And our minister, who was a human being, who was fallible, he made a mistake in the church. He, he said something. I forget exactly what he said, but he said something I knew was biblically incorrect. And I challenged him on it. I actually said, you know, his name was Reverend Darby. And I said, Reverend Darby, um, you know, you said that, and I think I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I said, Reverend Darby, you, you quoted this scripture, but you quoted it wrong. It, you should have said this. And again, I was factually correct. And instead of the people in the church saying, oh, yeah, you know, this young man was right. He, he, he you did get this wrong. I was castigated. I was told that how dare you speak anything wrong against the man of God? I was like, well, I understand he's a man of God, but, you know, he was factually wrong. What he said was not correct. And I was just trying to make make sure that what he said was right my grandmother got on me she told me how embarrassed she was for me the whole church got on me and I I fell silent I never questioned anything again why was it because he was right no he wasn't right he was actually factually wrong but a minister in many Protestant churches is worshiped almost to the same degree as Catholic priests are you can you are not allowed to question them and it's really a shame and, and of course, if you take it to the neck level, if you watch any of these charlatans who occupy most of these religious television broadcasts, and I, I beg you to stay away from things like TBN and the Word Network and all these other places that, that show these so-called ministers, you will witness a plethora of these mystics and con men basically selling favors from God if you, quote-unquote, sow a seed into their ministry. And by sow a seed, they mean give them money. These guys stand in front of the congregation claiming to worship God and they are just con men saying that if you give me money well then God will bless you what absolute utter nonsense what heresy they're acting no different than Catholics with their indulgences they're telling you give me money and God will bless you that is not biblical you are not supposed to be giving money to some man who claims to be God that's sowing a seed oh, their seed time harvest. Look and harvest looking just do some research Look into what the Bible actually says about what seed harvest means. It's spiritual. It is not physical. It does not mean that if you give money to a minister, you're going to be blessed. Obviously, God is it's all about charitable giving. That's what love is. But that charity should be people who are in need. You Your pastor, if, if you're watching any of these ministries on TV, who has a million-dollar house driving riding around in a Bentley and flying in a private jet, he doesn't need your money anywhere near as much as a starving child in Somalia or Ethiopia or in the Appalachians here in the United States or 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 in your downtown of your of your city, wherever you are, where there are homeless men and women and children. They need your money far more than some wealthy minister. And if you give your money to this minister, you're not going to be any more blessed than if you give your money to someone else. God, those blessings are spiritual and don't fall for these charlatans. I'll talk with him later in, in another um, uh, episode, but th- that really annoys me and it really makes me angry that these people are just cheating folks out of their money. They are no different than the Catholic hierarchy. Yet, even with this, there is a much more damaging doctrine that gained primacy during the Reformation that is probably the most responsible, in my opinion, for Jesus' condemnation of that church. And that doctrine is called Calvinism. Now, those of you who are Calvinists are probably not happy right now. Your jaws are tightening up. Your muscles are clenching. Your eyes are twitching. But just as I said with the Catholics, I'm just going to give you the history and you can make your own decisions. And if you want to talk about it in the comments, feel free. I welcome it. So Calvinism, what is Calvinism all about? Well, Calvinism started was started by a man named John Calvin. Uh, Calvin. John Calvin is on par with Luther as being the most influential figure in Protestantism. And one of the issues with both of these men is that, again, they were men. They weren't perfect. While Luther did a lot of great things for the Protestant Reformation, he was not on board with rejecting Catholicism. He didn't want to do away with it. He just wanted to reform it. And he actually kept a lot of the, some of the negative things about Catholicism. Luther remained, well, he, he remained as, as part of his doctrine, his personal philosophy. For example, Catholicism, especially in medieval times, was very, very anti-Semitic. It was very much against the Jews. They wanted to conquer Israel and, and uh, set up a the, uh, Catholic headquarters in Jerusalem. That's what the Crusades were all about. Millions of people were, were killed during these Crusades and they treated Jews as second or third class citizens, put them in ghettos and things like that. Martin Luther basically kept that whole thing going. He had no problems with that. So he did great things, but he was not a perfect man because, again, he was just a man. And because Luther was so influential, especially in Germany, which was his home uh, country, a lot of his anti-Semitism followed him and followed his his theology throughout the years. In fact, I talked about a few podcasts ago, there was a book called from Augustine to Auschwitz that talks about how the anti-Semitism that started with the early church fathers spread all the way to Germany in World War II. And Luther was a very important part of that. Luther um, adopted a lot of the Augustinian and uh, Catholic anti-Semitism. And the Lutheran church, which was, which was very prominent in Germany, they again were held on to a lot of that anti-Semitism, which is why they did not speak out against what the Nazis were doing against. the jews so there were some imperfect things there and that's probably one of the reasons that uh uh, jesus spoke against this church was again jesus was a ethnic jew the jews are the chosen people of god no matter what you feel about what the jews have done throughout history and even their implications in the death of christ they are still god's chosen people and we're going to talk about uh the jews and their impact on um eschatology and their place in, in, in the end times at a later date. But again, God never, despite what some people will say, God never rejected the Jews as his chosen people. The church did not replace the Jews. Again, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about that later. But uh, let's move on and continue talking about uh, John Calvin. So Calvin, as far as his theology, Calvin believed in an all-powerful in the all-powerful God of the Bible and the doctrine of salvation by faith. Same thing as Luther and the rest of the Protestants. However, as, as high of an opinion as Calvin had of God, he had a very low opinion of man. He believed that man was so inherently evil that there was no way he could ever choose God in salvation on his own, of, of his own volition. So, to try to resolve the contradiction between God being sovereign and wanting to have an imperfect man share eternity with him, Calvin sought to create a comprehensive doctrine that allowed for the five soles, the five onlys that I just mentioned, uh, that Luther um, championed, God's sovereignty, and man's total depravity. Unfortunately, what Calvin came up with was a religious dogma that conflicts with and in some places outright contradicts God's word, his plan, and God's very nature. Even more unfortunate is that Calvinism is the foundational doctrine of most Protestant churches. In fact, five-point Calvinism, if you know what it means, you understand that it is in the creed of many of our current churches. And I would say at least four out of the five of them are, are, are pretty detrimental. Let's talk about them. What are the five points of Calvinism and why are they so dangerous? So Calvinism contains these five key doctrines or points. They're called TULIP because TULIP is kind of a, an acronym, to a way to uh, basically help you remember these five points because each of the letters um, T U The word, the the spelling of the word uh, tulip, each one of these letters are the beginnings of each one of the foundational doctrines. So let's let's go into the five points. Uh, Point number one, the T, is total depravity. That means that man is born a sinner and cannot become righteous and just on his own. Okay, this is the one point of Calvinism that I'm in total agreement with and and that I think the, the Bible speaks about. Man is born in sin and we cannot become righteous and just on on his own. Man cannot be righteous and just on his own. I I think that's a pretty sound doctrine. Unfortunately, it goes all downhill from there. Point number two, the U, is unconditional election. Unconditional election means that God sovereignly chooses who will be saved without any input from the person. Now see, this has all kinds of problems. First of all, it denies our free will. It means that man has no choice in God's plan and that means a man can't really love God. What do I mean by that? Well, if, if unconditional election is true, and God just decides randomly, arbitrarily, who's going to be in his kingdom, then that means that by default, he also chooses who's not going to be in his kingdom. And, and, and I'll talk about that in, in, in a few minutes. So that's, that's another one of his points. But unconditional election means that if you, if God chose you before the foundation of the world, But before you were even a baby, he said, you know what? This person is going to be born at this date and they're going to choose me. Well, what choice do I have in it? I don't have a choice. I was just designated as God's. What if I don't want to be a Christian? Well, it doesn't matter. I can't. I have no choice. God has elected me. It's unconditional. It has nothing to do with me. It's all about God. God has sovereignly chose me to be a Christian, to be in his kingdom. And I have no say in it. Well, again, that denies our free will. And it means we can't love God because love to love someone is a choice. You can't make someone love you. That is completely antithetical to what love is all about. If I can't choose to if, if I can't choose love then I can't love. If if you are mandating someone to love you then you're basically saying that the person is a robot. It, it completely negates the process of, of of getting into God's kingdom. It also makes being the bride of Christ basically a shotgun wedding. If not rape, again, if you, if someone becomes, if you're the bride of Christ and you have no say in it, then again, if someone wants you to be their bride and doesn't let you have a say, that's actually called rape folks. It also means that God intentionally and arbitrarily sends people. He doesn't elect to hell without clemency. So I'm a Christian. I live, but I live in a neighborhood. I live in a city that is pretty secular. So I have neighbors who are not Christians, who are in fact, atheists. You know, nice enough people, but they've chosen to be atheists and, you know, I'm working on them, but that, that is their choice. Well, according to unconditional election, it means that they have no, if God didn't choose them, then they can never come to God. No matter what, if I, no matter how hard I share the gospel with them, they will never be Christian because God didn't choose them. And that again is unjust. It is unjust to make someone believe or even not believe something against their will. Unconditional election is unrighteous, unjust, and contradicts God's nature in just about every way imaginable. It is a horrible, horrible idea. It it keeps going, though. Point three, the L, limited atonement. Limited atonement means that Jesus did not die for the sins of the whole world. He only died for the sins of those unconditionally elected in point two. Now, this doctrine has many of the same problems as point two. Limited atonement means that Jesus, it basically, it also means, it means that Jesus lied in John three sixteen, the most famous verse in the Bible. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for our sins. Well, if this is true, then that's that's a lie. He didn't die for the whole world. It, it should say, for God so loved the world that he died for the percentage of people who got unconditionally elected. Well, that's not what the verse says. It says he died for the world. So whosoever, meaning it was open-ended. That means if you choose to believe in Jesus, then you believe in Jesus. But point two and point three, limited atonement mean, makes that completely it completely negates that and it's anti-biblical and it totally contradicts John 3, 16. Uh, point four, the I, irresistible grace, means that people who are elected, as in point three, those who are unconditionally elected to be saved will be irresistibly drawn to accept salvation. Now, this is an extremely weak attempt to make the God of Calvinism seem less like a, a tyrant. It makes grace a, a sort of a benevolent tractor beam to use a, a science fiction term that just draws you in whether you like it or not. So let's say that I am meant to be a Christian. Let's say that before my birth, God elected that this guy, you're going to be a Christian. And I say I live my life, but I'm not living a godly life. Let's say I'm born into a non-Christian home and I never hear about God. or didn't go to church. Well, irresistible grace means that I'm just going to be drawn against my will again to grace. I'm going to be drawn to God. Something's going to happen and I have no choice about it. His grace to me is irresistible. They have, of course, the wrong definition of grace, but they say it's irresistible. So it's a tractor beam that just forces me to choose God through some kind of siren song. And again, it relies on an incorrect definition of grace. I talked about grace in a podcast about the church before I started the series on Revelation. And I don't want to get into it too much here because I'm way over time. Sorry, this is going to be a, a longer podcast if you haven't guessed. I mean, excuse me, a longer video if you haven't guessed it already. But... The incorrect definition of grace that Calvinism purports is unmerited favor. And that is, again, the most popular definition of grace in our modern church, unmerited favor. That is incorrect. All you have to do is look in your Bible, look look at get a, a, a concordance, and look at the word grace. That word grace is the Greek word charis, C-H-R-I-S. The definition of charis is not unmerited favor. The definition of charis is the divine influence on the heart and its in re- in its reflection in life? Grace is the Holy Spirit influencing you, and you obeying the Holy Spirit. That's what grace is. It's not unmerited favor. Actually, the term unmerited favor is unjust because it's 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 meritless. God deals in justice, value for value. Unmerited favor is completely unjust, and it, again, it's the wrong definition of grace. And again, it denies your free will. The last point, number five, P in Tulip, is perseverance of the saints. Basically, once you are saved, you can't ever change your mind. It's the once saved, always saved. Now, don't get me wrong. No one can take your salvation. I talked about this before. No one can take your salvation. God gives your salvation out without repentance. Once you are saved, God will never take your salvation. Another person cannot take your salvation. Satan, demons, fallen angels. No one can take it from you, but you can choose to reject it. But the perseverance of the saint uh, denies a free will. In order for this to work, God, in order for perseverance of the saints to work, in order for you to be once saved, always saved, God would have to intentionally damage or remove the part of your brain that allows cognition. This would, this doctrine renders you a prisoner or a zombie. Because how, there, the idea in Calvinism is that once you're saved, you can never reject God. But I know people who were, who were Christians, but they rejected God later. Now, the Calvinists would say that this person was never a Christian to begin with. And honestly, when I was growing up and I, I was raised in a church that, that adhered to the Calvinist doctrine, and I believed that, okay, well, this person, he, the person who says they rejected God, they were never really saved. Well, again, that's kind of an arrogant statement to make. I don't know this person's heart. I just can only believe what they say. And I believe that someone could become a Christian and then decide for their own reasons that they no longer want to be a Christian. They can reject God. It's very controversial. Some people don't believe it. There's a very strong once saved, always saved. But if you believe that someone can never choose to reject their salvation, then you are saying that they can no longer, that they they are, that once they are saved, some part of their brain, the part of their brain that allows them free choice is either removed or damaged by God. Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says God gives you a new heart. But he doesn't give you a, a uh, he doesn't damage your mind or give you a different mind he gives you a new heart okay so four of the five points of Calvinism are completely contradictory and they deny free will they deny the nature of God they deny the justice of God and they render God into a dictator and a tyrant who again makes you do things against your will who sends some people to heaven and arbitrarily sends other people to hell without any choice or volition on their part and I don't believe that's how God works But why does this doctrine, why does Calvinistic doctrine render the church dead? Well, Calvinism causes death because in order to live, you have to repair and grow. In order to repair, you have to think contrastively. You have to admit that you could be wrong, which is uncomfortable and goes against our nature. But if you believe that God elected you unconditionally and that you can't lose your salvation no matter what you do, what's your motivation to repair? I mean, seriously, if you don't think that you can lose your salvation, then why should you grow and repair? You've already got your tickets punched to God. You're, you're done. All you got to do is just sit back and wait for to either, either be called home or to die and enter the pearly gates. That's why the churches, the congregations I talked about before are so holier than thou and hypocritical because they're like, hey, I'm saved. I'm on God's side. I don't have to worry about me anymore, let me turn my focus on you and tell you all the places that you're wrong because hey, I'm good, I'm great, I'm a child of God, and nothing had ever happened to me bad. Now let's point out all the bad things that are wrong with you so I can feel superior to you. And that's what those hypocritical, holier than thou churches are all about. They're about pride and about you feeling better about yourself by feeling worse or about other people and pointing out bad things about them. Also, if you believe that God sovereignly chose to send some people to heaven and other people to hell without their input, then why obey the Great Commission? Why go out and make disciples of all men? Why go out and witness and evangelize? What is what's the point of evangelizing anybody? Hey, God chose them already. God either if God chose you to go to. If God chose you to go to heaven, you're going to go to heaven whether I evangelize to you or not. And if God chose you to go to hell, then you're going to go to hell whether I evangelize to you or not. Again, if they were if they were meant to be saved, then irresistible grace will draw them. If not then hey limited atonement means Jesus didn't die for them anyway so there's no wasted blood Jesus didn't waste a drop of blood on those people who are going to hell because they weren't it's limited atonement so in Calvinism you have no responsibility for salvation or for spreading the gospel you have no responsibility whatsoever it's all God's sovereignty so why should you do anything why preach why teach why evangelize why grow why repair just stay as you are stay stagnant stay dead Calvinism makes God nothing more than a cosmic puppeteer while absolving men of all responsibility for their actions. If you're good, quote unquote good, it's because God made you good. If you're evil, then well, that's God's sovereign will that you go to hell. Enjoy hell. What does that mean for today's church? Well, as I mentioned in, in the podcast on Thyatira, the structure of Jesus' four letters changed slightly to indicate that these four churches will be in existence in some form when Jesus returns for his bride. If you take a close look at this letter, you will find the term name featured throughout. I talked about that before. This is an intentional wordplay about the Holy Spirit for that Greek word onoma, which is the root of the English word denominations. Onoma, denomination, and you can see it. Sardis is a contemporary, traditional, or mainline denominational church. Lutherans, Episcopalians, Presbyterian, Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostal, all the rest. That's who they are. That's who we are. That's where they lie in this prophetic scale. The advice Jesus has for this dead church is again, to wake up and strengthen that which remains, which is about to die. Remember what you've already learned. In other words, make sure you don't lose the one thing you are barely doing right, which is salvation doctrine. That's the only thing the Reformation got right was salvation. Everything else between Luther's uh, machinations and anti-Semitism and between Calvinism's dead, stagnant Theology which where God's a cosmic tyrant and give you and, and and you have no responsibility, that's all dead stuff. The only thing they got right was salvation. The best this church can hope for is to be saved, but they will have little or no reward in heaven because they are not growing. They are not helping others grow because they see no incentive to do so. They did nothing. This church did nothing to benefit God on earth. They were just stagnant, lazy, and dead. Now it's hard as the my, my, uh, my video was on Thyatira and Catholicism. At least Catholics did some good works in which Jesus commended to them in the letter to Thyatira. Even though those works don't save them, at least it offers some benefits. At least if they manage to get in heaven, they'll have some reward because they've done good works. But this, this dead church, you aren't even doing any good works. You'll be saved and have nothing in heaven. You'll have no reward. And if this church doesn't wake up, Jesus said his return for his bride will come on them like a thief. They won't recognize the signs of Jesus coming because they're not watching for him vigilantly. Why? Because Calvinism tells them they don't need to. Calvinism tells you, you have no responsibility. Now Jesus ended this letter by saying that there are some names, denominations maybe in Sardis that have not gone down the path of death. Jesus specifically says they have not defiled their garments and talked about this before garments are your righteousness. Redemption, like everything else associated with God is righteous and just. Justice is represented by salvation. Righteousness is growth and sanctification. This church got salvation right, but Calvinism greatly hinders and defiles righteousness. This is how they defiled their garments. And no, I'm not going to speculate on which specific denominations Jesus might be referring to in his message to the overcomers. I think this letter makes it clear that the denominational church is not the best place for Christians to be, period. So let's just wrap up by looking at what happened to the city of Sardis. Did they get their act together? No, as I said, there are only two cities that still remain today in, in um, modern day Turkey. That is, uh, and these are the, obviously the two letters that oh, which Jesus had nothing bad to say. Smyrna, the, the city of Smyrna is still around. It's called um, um, Ishmir today. And the city of Philadelphia is still around. We'll talk about them in the next in the next video sardis unfortunately is on the dunghill hill of history it's just nothing but ruins just like ephesus and pergamum and thyatira they're nothing they're no longer cities god removed their lampstand because they did not obey his commission to them all right i am well 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 over <laughs> my time limit i think i'm over an hour now so sorry about that um but I just needed to let this be known because Sardis is, what, is is one of the churches that I think affects us greatly as non-Catholic Christians, which I'm assuming most of my listeners are. Um, you, I suggest listening to this again, reading these verses uh, that, are, that, that I've uh, told you about and, and reading this history and really understanding what's going on here with the church of Sardis and our modern denominational church. And wake up from that deadness. Listen to Jesus' admonition to you. Be one of those few names in Sardis which are not defiled and and for which Jesus will give white garments to walk in his righteousness, not your own. Not your own self-righteousness, not your own hypocritical self-righteousness, not your own pride, but walk in the righteousness that Jesus gave. Repair, grow, be watchful. Don't be a part of this dead church because if you are, Jesus Jesus will come upon you as a thief and he will take something from you and I think we're going to talk about that when we get to the rapture. I, I truly believe that if you are not watchful, then when Jesus returns for His church, you will be left behind. I can't get any further into that because I, that's a whole other can of worms, a whole other controversy that we'll deal with when we get to the this uh, the um uh, post or the excuse me the post the uh, videos on the rapture. All right, that's going to wrap things up. In the next episode things have got things have gone from bad to worse smyrna was kind of the high point with the persecuted church that was that received no condemnations however from pergamum to thyatira to sardis things keep getting worse and worse and worse for the church but in the next episode we're going to talk about the bright light among all the churches the one church that is doing exactly what jesus wants who is the true bride of christ for whom jesus has nothing bad to say and for whom he promises unbelievable blessings and that's the church we all want to be a part of. And that is a church at Philadelphia, not the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. I've been to that city. It has some issues of its own. We're talking about ancient Philadelphia and what that represents as far as the prophetic church. So stay tuned for that. Things get much, much better next episode. Of course, then after that, we get to see it, which is the worst church of all. But again, Philadelphia is that bright light. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Please send me in your comments. If you have issues with Lutheranism or Calvinism or anything I've said, I'd love to hear it. Um, we can talk about it. Uh, please subscribe to Faith by Reason. I appreciate your subscription. Um, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. To subscribe on faithbyreason.net, and you'll get these episodes as soon as they come out when you hit that notification bell on YouTube. And I will talk to you next week when we talk about the church again. That we should all aspire to be the faithful church at Philadelphia.